So very quickly, if you have a Bible, um, you can turn to me to Jeremiah 33. Um, part of the reason we're doing Jeremiah 33 today is that last week we took a look at Jeremiah 29. I just thought it might be a good follow-up to move from the 29th chapter to the 33rd chapter. Now, if you don't remember, um, I'll fill you in really quickly, sort of give you some context. So Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Now, part of the reason he's known as the weeping prophet, we even have a picture of him up here with, um, uh, by Rembrandt in a few moments, and you can kind of see him um, looking sort of uh, forlorn and withdrawn. Uh, but Jeremiah served for about 40 years, so he was a prophet for about 40 years. Um, his ministry began in around 650 B.C., and, uh, and he saw some very interesting times in the life of Israel and Judah. Um, he saw the nation of Israel really kind of turn its back on God and reject the covenant of God. He saw the nation of Israel entering into um, worshiping Baal, so the, uh, the false gods of the surrounding um, nations. Uh, he saw them build altars to Baal. He saw, saw them uh, be involved in child sacrifice. I mean, he saw all these things. And, and part of what he saw too, and part of what he communicated to the people is, if you don't turn back to God, then you need to understand that God is going to punish you, right? And so, at the writing of Jeremiah 33, what we know is there have already been a couple deportations where Babylon has come on the scene. In fact, the Bible is very clear that God allowed Babylon to conquer Israel uh, in order to wake them up and to remind them of the covenant, Right? And so at, at the writing of this, Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah is actually inside the city walls of Jerusalem. He's kind of holed up there. And uh, the Babylonian horde is encamped outside the walls of Jerusalem. They've already conquered, you know, sort of all of the areas of Judah around Jerusalem. And they're really just getting ready to break through the walls. And into this, uh, part of what Jeremiah communicates to the remaining Jews, the Israelites there, is he says, listen, you've turned away from God. You've worshipped foreign gods, but as a result, and as a result, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your sin in the form of Nebuchadnezzar, in the form of the Babylonians. But the good news is, is that God, your God, will not and has not given up on you. That was good news for them, and it's good news for us today as well. Join me, if you will, in reading Jeremiah 33, 10 through 16. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place... It is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for he is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel And to the house of Judah, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you again for 
drawing us into your presence, bringing us into this place. Um, I pray that your spirit would be upon us in an unmistakable fashion. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't be able to leave here today without really having had an encounter with you, the living God. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's the deep breath before the plunge. This will be the end of Gondor as we know it. Uh, Anybody tell me the quote from that or what that's from? Lord of the Rings. Nerd alert. All right. Anyway, just kidding. I love it. Um, So yeah, that's from this little speech where we have Gandalf and Pippin, and they're standing there in Minas Tirith or Minas Tirith, and uh, they're overlooking sort of the fields outside the walls of Minas Tirith, and what they know is they know that Sauron is on the way. They can sort of see sort of the the flashes of Mount Doom and the distance and the lightning and striking, and a part of what they know is that these hordes of orcs and all these other fearsome creatures are coming to Minas Tirith, and they know that they're severely, severely outmanned. They know that the chances are that they're going to get wiped out and destroyed. And in this little talk here on the porch overlooking the fields, awaiting the arrival of of the forces of Mordor, Gandalf and Pippin have this little discussion. And part of what Pippin is doing is he's basically saying, I am terrified, scared to death. I'm so fearful. And, of course, you can imagine that he's fearful of these, you know, these creatures are going to kill him or enslave him. And not only that, but he's, he's filled with doubt. He's filled with the doubt that they can actually really do anything to stop it, right? Like, what are we going to do? And at the same time, he communicates this desire that he has for the world to be right and to be as it was created to be. And in the midst of that, Gandalf gives him a little bit of hope. And that little bit of hope is not in the fortress of Gondor. It's not in the strength of their army or even of other troops coming to support them. Their hope lies in the hands of this little hobbit, their savior, wandering around Mordor looking for uh, Mount Doom where he's going to throw this ring, right? And so again, it's this picture of Pippin filled with doubt, right? Filled with fear and even filled with this desire that this would all go away and that everything would be made right. I don't know about you guys, but that's probably very much how Jeremiah felt, right? As he was inside the city walls of Israel and the forces of Babylon were encamped around the walls of Jerusalem. He knew that impending doom was there. He probably felt doubt. He probably felt fear. He probably felt a desire for it to all go away and to be made right. Chances are many of you in this room today experience those same emotions, right? You're filled with fear. You're filled with doubt. You have a desire for the way that life should be, the way that you want it to be, but it's not that way. And so you have a hope Uh, Maybe even if it's uh, sort of an empty feeling hope sometimes that God will fix it all and make it right. Now here's what's interesting about Jeremiah 33 is in the midst of this really terrifying situation, he addresses the three cries of our heart. He addresses our doubt, he addresses our fear, he addresses our desire. Let's begin with God addressing not only our desire, but the desire of the nation of Israel as they see Babylon coming against them. Verses 10 through 12 say this. This is what the Lord says, you say about this place, really probably Israel, it's a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. This is what the the Lord Almighty says, in this place, desolate And without people or animals, in all its towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. So again, you can just imagine really quickly that 
you know, the remaining Jews and Jeremiah are inside the city walls, and they're looking out at sort of the surrounding fields and the valleys, and what they see about them is there's already been two deportations. What they see around them is they probably see the smoldering ruins of, of houses and buildings and fields. They probably see dead bodies. They see the forces of Babylon everywhere. They see desolation. They see destruction, and they know that it's desolation and destruction that's been brought on by their own sin, right? They know that. They, they feel the weight and the guilt of that. And it looks to them like really all is lost forever. And yet what God says to them as they look at the desolation and as they look at the destruction that their own sin has brought on, what they hear is God promising them, the Israelites, uh, what we all desire. They hear God promising them restoration, right? Restoration. We all want the world to be made right. No lying, no stealing, no murder, no rape, no abuse of power. The ability to trust one another, right? We want that. The ability to be safe, to love and to be loved without being rejected, maybe one of our deepest desires. We desire a world where we're not only safe from external threats, but we desire a world where we're safe from internal threats as well. A world where we can say no to the second piece of cake or pie or whatever uh, it is that you consume that you know you shouldn't have and is not good for you. A world where we don't struggle with depression or anxiety, right? We desire that. A world where we not only can say no to inappropriate sexual temptation, in fact, what we really want is a world and to live in a world where there is no inappropriate sexual temptation. What the Jews long for, what we long for, is the world to be made right. We know that this is not the way that it was meant to be. There's something deep inside us that understands that, and we desire for the world to be made right. We desire for restoration. Here's what Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, has to say about this idea of restoration. He says this, we modern people uh, think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem it where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming, right? You know, if you're young, your tendency is to think the world that I want is just out there in front of me, right? And if I just go to the right college, and if I just get the right job, and I just marry the right person, and if I just you know, move to the right city, then the world will be as it's supposed to be. Or maybe if the right government, you know, or the right party is in charge, then the world will be as it is, or as it's supposed to be, right? That's how the way young people look at the world. Those of us who are older and getting older, we look at the world and we go, no man or woman is going to make this world right, right? No college degree is going to make it right. Uh, the right job isn't going to fix it, right? The right party isn't going to fix it. None of that stuff is going to fix it. The only thing that's going to restore this world back to the way that it was created to be is God himself, right? We read in the book of Revelation where God says, behold, I am making all things new, right? Part of what God is doing in Jeremiah 33, right? Part of what he's doing in Jesus coming to earth and part of what he's doing in Revelation is he's saying that I'm going to restore this world. I'm going to make it the place that you long for it to be. God addresses their desire amidst all of that desolation, 
all that destruction. Part of the message for those of you this morning who feel like you're living in the midst of your own desolation and destruction, part of the message for you this morning is that God will make all things new, that God will redeem your situation, that he can make it the world that you desire it to be. He addresses their desires. The second thing that we see in this Jeremiah 33 is that God only, not only addresses their desires and our desires, but he also addresses their fear and our fear as well. Now, I don't need to tell you that you struggle with fears, right? That's pretty self-evident. Um, let me read you a very quick list of some phobias that are common phobias in the world that we live in. 7.9% of people fear social interaction. That means that a good portion of you this morning are not really thrilled to be here this morning, right? You got dragged here by a boyfriend, or maybe you got dragged here by a husband, but it's kind of fearful for you to be in the midst of all these other people, right? Uh, fear of heights. 10% of people have a fear of heights, right? This is not uh, you know, a rational fear of heights. This is sort of an irrational fear of heights. Fear of darkness, right? 11% of people, so that's, again, almost one out of 10 of you in this room have a fear of darkness, uh, for years, I've had to come over here to the DeSoto on Saturday nights uh, to turn the heat on. Jefferson got to do it last night. And you walk into this pitch black old theater. They actually did a Ghost Hunters episode in here one time, seriously, like 15 years ago. <clears throat> and you walk in with the light on your flashlight, and you walk through this super dark room, and you walk up here backstage, whatever, to turn on the, the heat on Saturday night when it, so it, it's not too freezing. And though I'm not usually afraid of the darkness, when I'm in the DeSoto in the middle of the night, I got to admit, it's a little bit, just a little bit nervous. Anyway, fear of spiders. 30% of people are afraid of spiders. I was driving the truck the other day through the middle of town. And as I was driving, I looked up and on the roof of the inside of the truck, and this is like a 1985 Ford F-250. So it's no surprise how bugs and animals get in there. But anyway, but I looked up on the ceiling and there's a spider on the ceiling. It was pretty big, like that big. And I'm not terrified of spiders, but I thought... I'm going to squish him. And so I went like this and took my hand and went like that and kind of smacked him <clears throat> as I was driving. And uh, so I did that, but I was driving, so I was trying to be careful. But I looked up on the ceiling, and there was no squish mark. And so I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I looked at my hand. There's nothing on my hand. And it was like directly above me. And so I quickly looked down at the seat beneath me. I didn't see the spider anywhere. Um, not usually scared of spiders, but I also don't like it when I don't know where they are. And they may have just landed on my thigh. Anyway. He may still be hanging out in the truck. Anyway, uh, 66% of you um, have a real fear and anxiety of losing your cell phone, right? That's become a real fear. Uh, fear of death, 68%. I don't know why that's not 100, because death is terrifying. <clears throat> anyway, uh, and then fear of public speaking, 74%. In other words, we've all got fears, right? That's something, it's, it's just part of being a human being is that we're fearful. And if you're not fearful now, just live a little while, because I, I, I'm telling you, as you get older, you begin to see the reality of life. I found my first gray hair on the top of my head last night. Krista and I were standing in the mirror, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, I think I've got a white hair. And she dug around up there for a minute. I was like, yeah, it's a white hair. And I was like, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of cool. But at the same time, it's a scary reminder of my mortality. We, we struggle with fear. Our fears, right, living in this world that we're living in right now, hanging out in the DeSoto Theater, um, going home to our, you know, well-heated apartment or house or whatever, going to lunch after church on Sunday. It's nothing compared with the fear that the Israelites were experiencing, right? Just imagine yourselves, yourself in the walls of Jerusalem. The army of Babylon is outside the walls. Maybe drums are beating. 
Smoke is rising from the fires of buildings already sacked and burned. Maybe a battering ram is thumping at the gates, at the city gates. You can imagine, if you're an Israelite, what awaits. Deportation away from your home, your friends uh, and your family, maybe torture, slavery, and very possibly death, right? Fear of all of those things would have been a completely normal reaction. It was for them and it would be for us as well. Now, here's what's interesting. What assurance does God offer them in their fear? What he offers them is a future hope. What he says is in verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. In other words, he, he, he says, I'm not gonna save you from this right now, but one day I'll save you. One day you'll live in safety. In other words, things look dark right now, but at some point I'll bring you to a place where you will live without fear. Embedded in that promise is actually a reminder, a bigger reminder and a bigger promise that God is in control. How many of us need to hear that? How many of us need to hear that, that God will save us, that we will one day live in safety? More importantly, how many of us need to hear that God is in control? That's the beauty of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 makes it clear that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good, but it says that all things, whether they're good or bad, will work together for the good of those people who are called uh, and who walk with the Lord and who love him. He's in control, right? And one thing not to miss in this piece of the story is not only that God promises a future hope, not only that uh, he is in control, but there's also a piece of this where he is saying, I'm with you, right? I'm still here in the presence of your enemies, right? He's still talking to them, right? He's still communicating to them. It's a little bit like a parent who goes with their child to the doctor. They know the, doc- the child's going to get a shot. And the parent says, look, I got to let you get this shot, right? You're going to have to go through this. It's going to be kind of painful, but I'm right here with you. And just knowing that God is with us does actually bring us comfort, does actually bring us hope. That's why David wrote in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're going to go through the dark valley, right? Your ability to not be fearful in the middle of that dark valley is not because you're strong, right? It's not because you actually are safe. The truth is you're in danger. Your ability to overcome your fear comes from the reminder that God is with you. He's in control and he's with you. Not only does God address our desires and our fears, he addresses the doubts of the Israelites and our doubts as well. Look at verse 11. Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Again, you can just imagine, you know, the Jews are locked up inside, the remaining Jews are locked up inside the walls of Jerusalem. And they're there again, they know, because of their sin, worshiping Baal, child sacrifice, uh, altars to foreign gods. They've broken the covenant, right? They're afraid of death and torture and slavery. But maybe more importantly, what they're thinking is that God is finally done with them, right? He's had enough, right? That, it, that his patience has run out, that his mercy has been exhausted, right? And they, they may be thinking that this is the last time. There's no way that God can forgive us. There's no way that God still loves us. There's no way he wants to be with us. He's done, right? That's, you can imagine that they would think that. 
And into their doubts, God speaks through Jeremiah, and listen to what he says. For the Lord is good. You very clearly are not good, right? (laughs) You've broken the covenant. You've turned away from me. You've worshiped uh, other gods, right? You've sinned again and again and again. You're not good, but I am good. And it goes on to say, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. God is saying, I'm good. And he's saying, I haven't given up on you. I love you. I haven't given up on you yet. I won't give up on you. I love you. Krista had a a good friend, my wife Krista, had a good friend in college who was always one of these people who kind of was always pushing the boundaries a little bit, always sort of pushing the envelope a little bit, always was involved in making life decisions that were a little bit dangerous and a little bit risky and honestly sort of bordered on self-destructive well, after college, her decisions um, went further than just bordering on self-destructive, and they entered into uh, sort of full-blown self-destructive behavior. Um, she started off by uh, getting involved in some sort of, you know, lower-level level drugs like marijuana and some other things, and she made her way on um, into a point where she got addicted to heroin. And so she was addicted to heroin. She was dating a guy who was actually, a, a, I think, a, a sold drugs and I think that's how they sort of became um, acquaintances and became romantically involved. And so she was living this life post-Covenant College. Uh, She was the daughter of a very religious um, and really, you know, loving Christian family. And so here she is. She's living with this guy. She's involved in a relationship. She's addicted to heroin. And uh, she basically sort of goes in and out of rehab. And each time she goes into rehab, her parents come and visit her, and they hug on her and pray for her. And she sort of you know, says, well, it's going to be different this time. And then she goes back out into the world. She gets addicted to heroin again. She's still with this guy. And there came a point in her life where she had sort of made her way up to Washington, D.C. And her life by this point in time was just an absolute wreck, an absolute mess. In fact, she said, honestly, she said, I had had pretty much by this point in time hit rock bottom. I had lived a life and I had done things that I just can't even talk about and chances are you probably can't even imagine. And she said, I was in yet another rehab up in Washington, D.C., and my poor parents, for the fourth or fifth, sixth time, had come to visit me. And we were standing in this room, and there I was there with my parents, and I was there with one of the people who was a counselor for me. And I looked across the room, and I saw this man talking to my mom and to dad. And she said, all of a sudden, I realized that my parents weren't going to give up on me, Right? And I realized that, like, after all this, you know, eight years, essentially, of me being in and out of rehab, of making their lives miserable, and of them worrying sick, and she said, I was just struck with the fact that my parents still loved me, and no matter what, they weren't going to give up on me. And she was talking to Krista several years after she got out of rehab, uh, really got off of all of these drugs, entered into a marriage with a really healthy and wonderful man. And she said, the very thing that allowed me ultimately to to overcome this addiction and overcome this self-destructive life was understanding just how much my parents loved me, right? That's the gospel. That's the reason we do the Lord's Supper. It's the reason why we preach. It's the reason why Jesus came. Every single one of us in this room have doubted whether or not we did it too many times, right? We've all doubted that. We've all doubted whether or not the thing that we did was too big, and maybe God just can't or isn't willing to forgive us for that thing because it was too big. Or or maybe we doubt that he can forgive us or still wants to be with us because we knew better, and we did it anyway, and into that, God's message to the Israelites and God's message to us is 
give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. I'm not giving up on you. I still love you, right? It's an amazing message, especially with the, the uh, Babylonian troops outside. But that's the message not only for the Israelites 2,600 years ago, it's God's message for you today. I still love you, and I'm not giving up on you. Don't doubt that, right? How do we know, though? How do we know that God still loves us? How do we know that he'll still save us? The answer, of course, is because of Jesus. Hear the words of Jeremiah. Verse 15 says this, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. The way that we know that God still loves us is because he sent his one and only son in order to live a perfect life and die a death that shouldn't have been his, it should have been ours, and to rise again. That's how we know that he loves us and that he hasn't given up on you or on me. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope and the comfort that you offer us in the midst of our fear. Father, I thank you that your word to us is that you will save us, that you are in control, and that you are with us. Father, I thank you that in the midst of our doubts and in the midst of our fears, Father, that you proclaim that you haven't and you will not give up on us. And so, Father, I pray that this would be um, the truth that we believe, Father, amidst all of these other competing truth claims in the world that we live in and even the competing truth claims inside our own hearts and our own minds, I pray that the truth claim that would ring the loudest in our ears is that you love us and that you loved us enough to send your only son uh, to die on the cross for us. And so, Father, our hope we know and we believe is in you, our good Father, and in your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.